Hi, everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you are listening to Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast, where we have smart conversations about pregnancy, parenting, politics, healthcare, feminism, and then some. This week, we're going to focus on healthcare. And to get us started, I want to talk a little bit about what went down on repealing the Affordable Care Act this week. Now, I've heard some people say that they think that the ACA has already been repealed. It hasn't. Don't freak out yet. What has happened is that the Republican majority in the Senate has voted to begin debates to repeal the Affordable Care Act. It's step one in a long process that might lead to the destruction and repeal of our current health care plan. Frankly, I'm getting worried. I am. Um, there is so much completely bizarre, unacceptable crap going down on Capitol Hill right now and in the White House that the Senate just seems to let it happen, no matter how extreme or perverse or destructive or, you know, in the case of our health care system, downright deadly. Repealing the Affordable Care Act without having a plan for replacement is brazen cruelty. So what's going to happen? Well, we don't know yet. Um, certainly not. We're, we're not looking at a system that's functioning the way anyone expects to. And, you know, even people like myself who are ridiculously optimistic, we're getting nervous. Um Hopefully, every one of you listening is going to plug into the advocacy system. That means call your senator and congressman and tell them what you think of this process. If you're in favor of the direction that the Senate is going, well, by all means, tell them that. But if you're like me and tens of millions of other Americans, losing the protections provided by the Affordable Care Act means we're screwed. The fact that nobody has read the Republican health care bill means that they haven't formulated one yet. No one has any idea what's in it, and no women were involved in the planning of said health care plan. You know, it's it, it's bizarre. It's bizarre. Um, and the Republican Senate seems to be okay with that. They're okay with denying coverage for pre-existing conditions, for prenatal care, reproductive health care, for all kinds of things that impact women, children, and families that are, you know, these are things that are free in many well-functioning countries, but which can lead to bankruptcy here in the United States. Um, you know, I want to give a big shout out to Republican Senators Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. They voted against the motion to proceed. Senator Collins and Senator Murkowski, you are my sheroes. Thank you for standing up for women in America and around the world. We're counting on you. And they are Republicans. They are women. But all of the Democrats, Democratic senators voted against proceeding as well. So there are a lot of people in the House who are they're working hard on the behalf of our healthcare system and I give them a shout out too keep going again we're counting on you so that's enough of a rant i'm going to get right to our guest today because i'm ready to sit down for a good long chat 
Today, we're going to continue on the topic of women's health and the U.S. government and hear from two women who also count as my sheroes, Rachel Moynihan and Sarah Clark from UNFPA. Let's get them on the line. Hi, Jeannie. Hello. Hello. Hi, it's Rachel and Sarah. How are you? We are doing great. Yes. Can you hear us okay? I can hear you just fine. Whenever I have, um, you know, there's three of us on the pod. And, you know, for my listeners who aren't aware, we're not all in the studio together. I'm in my studio in Portland, Oregon. Rachel and Sarah are in their offices. And I hear one of you clicking away on your keyboard. Um, And you guys are in Washington, D.C., correct? Yes. On the most beautiful day. Jeannie, it is gorgeous here. Oh, yeah? What do you got? What do you got? What's no your weather? No humidity, uh, clear, temperate weather. I'd say it's probably in the high 80s, but no humidity. It's just we were just out having a lovely lunch. So. Oh my God! Now the last time that I spoke with you both, <laughs> <laughs> I think I had my little hair rant, didn't I? About we how did. when I come to DC, my hair just frizzes up. And I don't know. Do you guys remember the Saturday Night Live character Roseanne, Rosanna Dana? I remember her definitely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think of her every time I go to DC. (laughs) Your hair, your hair took notes from her. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, today in DC, your hair would would be very happy. Very happy in this weather. No humidity. The swamp has been drained, I guess. (laughs) Well, I cannot complain at all about the weather here in Portland because summertime is the best time ever. It's warm. It's sunny. It's great. I'm loving it. Well, ladies, I want to tell our listeners who you are. So let me get started with just a little a little intro. So last week, I hosted a podcast for Care Action, the other podcast that I work with. Um, and Care Action is a sister organization of CARE, which is the humanitarian organization I work with. And my listeners have heard a lot about CARE over the last... 85 episodes um and you and the three of us got to talk you guys are really in the trenches for women's and maternal health and we had so much more to talk about when we were finished with that episode that we decided to move the conversation over here to common sense pregnancy and parenting rachel monahan and sarah clark work for unfpa that's the united nations population fund And UNEPA's motto is so on target with what I hope for women and families that I just have to read it here. Delivering a world where every pregnancy is wanted, every childbirth is safe, and every young person's potential is fulfilled. Sarah Craven is the director of the Washington office for UNFPA. Rachel Moynihan is the advocacy and communications specialist at UNFPA. So now, Sarah and Rachel, now that I've read those really awesome and daunting job titles, my first question is this. And Sarah, I'm going to get you to go first. Who are you and what do you do? Hmm. Well, um, I'm so happy to be talking to you again, Jeannie, and I'm glad that you said our mission. Uh, I, I say that I'm a warrior for women's reproductive health and maternal health. Uh, mm-hmm. I like to think of myself as someone who works every day to try to win over hearts and change minds and really raise the profile of the needs of women and girls um, 
worldwide and certainly the most vulnerable and marginalized of women and girls. So sometimes that can feel like a very lonely task. So I'm very lucky that I have a partner in crime and Rachel in doing that work, but there's never a day where it doesn't feel like an incredibly important and awesome uh, job to have. Yeah, it's a really good job title. But what else? What else? When when you're off the clock. Oh, when I'm off the clock. Uh, Well, I'm a mother of three. Uh, My oldest daughter is uh, heading to college in two weeks. uh, And I have boy-girl twins who will be heading to high school. So I do a lot of work-life balance. And um, I uh, love to read books. And I love to go on long walks. And I like to drink some wine. Mm, you have a daughter going off to college in two weeks. I do. Oh, ouch. Yikes. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. How are you? How are it's you? All, it's all good. No, I'm really excited for her. And, uh, uh, you know, it's going to be the first, the first bird to leave the nest. But um, yeah. 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 That is a motherhood milestone that is like nothing else. Like Absolutely. nothing else. Yeah. So Rachel, it's your turn. Who are you and what do you do? Well, thanks again, Jeannie. Uh, we had such a fun time talking with you uh, last week. And um, like Sarah, it was, fun, oh, it was so fun. We had a great time. Um, and I like know. Sarah, I feel like I am a, uh, a also a warrior, a deputy warrior for women uh, to uh, my amazing boss, Sarah. Um, and I uh, am a native of Virginia, of the DC area. And um, I grew up loving uh, politics and the intersection of policy and politics and seeing the real influence um, of what a conversation in Washington can mean for people all around the world and especially for women. Um, I studied public policy in my graduate degree and one of the speeches that I studied was when um, then First Lady Hillary Clinton spoke uh, at a Beijing Women's Conference in 1995, where she declared for the first time ever on the international stage that women's rights were human rights. And um, it really struck me that that was the very first time on an international stage that that was declared. And um, I'm happy to see that the idea of, you know, sexual reproductive health and rights are human rights and, and you know, gender equality is a right. I, I'm glad to see that other movements have taken up that framing. But I think that really encapsulates um, what, what I agree with. I, I do believe that women's rights are human rights and I think they're um, uh, expressed in many different ways. So um, on the clock, uh, I, I fully, um, uh, I, I've dedicated my life to, to fighting for women's rights as human rights, and I uh, certainly believe that off the clock as well, but off the clock, uh, I'm a native Virginian, and I um, I would love to be uh, a mother of a cat, if I could be. Uh, I'm an mm-hmm. aspiring cat lady, but unfortunately, my, my husband is very allergic to them, and my husband is in his medical training right now, so we're on a long road. Uh, during his surgical training right now, but it's been a joy to work with Sarah on this uh, and, and stay very, very busy in the meantime. We have our hands full here in Washington. But no fur baby, no cat, no puppy? Unfortunately, uh. neither. Unfortunately, neither. One day, one day. Hey, hey Jeannie. <laughs> 
Jamie, yeah. Rachel has these like super awesome shoes that look like cats. And on the most important days, uh, when we're on Capitol Hill doing advocacy, she wears them. I think it's like she's channeling her inner tiger. So I might need I might need you to text me a photo of that. And I, I really say, yeah, like they're the <laughs> best icebreaker because Capitol Hill is not known to be a very relaxed or hair down place. But I have to say, when oh, I walk no, in not. wearing like a, a suit dress or a nice pair of pants and and those shoes they are uh, a great icebreaker so uh nice. hat tip to kate spade for those i recently had a conversation with a financial planner here in portland who has she she has a collection of cat dresses and she said that it started with um her pussy hat at the women's march and she just kind of went for it and developed this entire wardrobe around it (laughs) i love that well i tell you what rachel you send me a picture of your cat shoes and i will keep you fed with fur baby photos seriously i I could keep you supplied deal love it (laughs) that is a great deal i'm willing to make right now yeah 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 so i think that we should probably um, backtrack just a little bit because a lot of my listeners are totally unfamiliar with what unfpa is um so I'd like to, you know, just give them the very down and dirty short story of, of what it is, and then maybe a little bit of context about what's happening these days in terms of funding and policy and all that. Who's up? Who wants to answer that? My uh, UNFPA 101. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a crack, and then maybe uh, Rachel, we can tag team, and she can talk about what, what's happening, at least in the U.S. policy lens. Um, yeah. You know, I often talk about UNFPA as, depending on who the audience is, we're either the U.N. agency um, that is the most, uh, in my view, one of the more important ones. Others might say more obscure, and then there are some, some who might say um most infamous and uh we have a former danish colleague who used to say unfpa we're the agency that makes sex boring so that's to make you that's to make you laugh a little bit but what we are at our core is talking about the most fundamental and intimate decisions that people make in their lives with whom to have a family when to have sexual relations and to ensure as you know you said and when you described our mandate that every pregnancy is wanted and every childbirth is safe. So at our very core, uh, we are guided um, by a, uh, Rachel was mentioning the conference that happened in Beijing, China in 1995. But in 1994, 179 countries came together with the United States playing a very large leadership role. And at that conference in Cairo, Egypt, they all came together and they said, you know what? we're going to reframe how we look at issues of population and development. Before we sort of looked at that from a a demographic lens and talked about population explosions or too much population growth was gonna have a detrimental impact on the the planet. And in Cairo, that was completely reframed to say, at the core, every individual has the right to freely and voluntarily determine family size and the means to do so. And essential to that right is the right rights of women. That when women are given access to education, to economic opportunity, to healthcare, they on their own choose to have smaller families. So it was from that conference that the uh, blueprint for which we do our work was born. 
And now we work in over 150 countries. We work with governments, we work with non-governmental um, organizations to put that, that mandate into place. So what's that, what does that mean in practical terms? We do things like uh, train midwives so that when there's a woman who's in a very vulnerable situation or in a very remote place that there's someone there who can help bring her baby safely into the world. Uh, we work to ensure that girls don't have to um, face cultural barriers that prevent them from staying in school and reaching their full potential. So that means something like ensuring that they don't have to go into an early or forced marriage before they're ready to be married or that they don't have to have something you know, like a traditional harmful practice like female genital mutilation that can impact their health and well-being. Uh, we work to ensure that both men and women have access to voluntary contraception so that they can plan and space their births and build their families on their own time frame. So those are kind of the practical things that we're doing um, and we do it in partnership uh, and we do it at the community level because a lot of what I'm talking about is as I say fundamental it's like fundamental to people's lives is to have children and to have yeah. and to build their families. Um, so it's not exactly, you know, it's not a radical concept. This is a fundamental truth uh, uh, that, we're, that, that we're there trying to ensure that, that outcome. But unfortunately, these are also things that are very deeply ingrained in politics and culture and in religion. And as a result, it can get controversial. And, you know, that's why I say I'll turn it over to Rachel to talk about how Unfortunately, our mandate has gotten entwined in domestic abortion politics here in the U.S. Absolutely. Yeah, it has. It you know, has. And people, yeah. And people, you know, are really people who don't, you know, who aren't really familiar with development and humanitarian work and all of that. They're really surprised to hear that, you know, comprehensive, you know, having access to contraception and, and family planning Tech, just even information is among the most effective tools offered in comprehensive humanitarian assistance. And the Guttmacher Institute says 99% of American women have used contraception, at least at some point in their life. And so, and yet, you know, you just cannot disconnect all the controversy. It's bizarre. That's exactly right, and it's something that has been um, really hard. It's it's been hard to see because the impact of that is just devastating. Um, as you said, Jeannie, the idea of information and just having the information. What is yeah? How, how do you, how does one get pregnant? I mean, that's starting real basic, um, and and you know, folks all over the world who are coming into adolescence and being exposed to maybe uh, false information or, or dramatized information, you know, with the smart smartphones in all of our hands, um, the idea of understanding, um, you know, the, the impact of sexual relations uh, is, is important. And it's really important as a way, not just to, um, not just to share information, but also to protect oneself from sexually transmitted infections and from uh, unintended pregnancy. And we believe that um, for folks who are, are very um, against a, a abortion rights, uh, we believe that one of the, the quickest ways to get rid of the need for abortion is to give the information and then the services for folks to uh, prevent unintended pregnancy. Because if you don't have an unintended pregnancy, uh, you wouldn't resort to an abortion. 
Um, and it's kind of the, common sense, isn't it? <laughs> it I, you know? I would think so. I would think so. But um, yeah. But unfortunately, um, it's our, our the work uh, that UNFPA does uh, again in, in 150 countries all over the world. You know, we don't work in the United States, but um, the U.S. was a huge proponent and a huge leader in, in the creation of, of UNFPA. And if you think about the UN just generally, you know, the UN was born out of the ashes of two world wars, uh, and and uh, UNFPA was created about 20 years later, 15 years later. Uh, in, in the mid to late 60s, um, the idea of UNFPA uh, came around because people realized the population dynamics really mattered uh, in the mm -hmm. context of development and rights. And as Sarah captured in 1994, the idea that women's rights and volunteerism was at the very center of that and recognizing the human rights around this stuff is incredibly important. So this is life-saving stuff that's been recognized by the world. The world came together to form UNFPA. And, uh, and to determine what our mandate was, including safe childbirth and pregnancy. And so the idea that it's somehow conflated with, with abortion and, and marginalized to such a small topic, a small and divisive topic, um, is really sad because it, it really shortchanges what we do, the life-saving work that our colleagues do all over the world. And I'll just tell one quick anecdote. Sarah talked a little bit about midwifery, you know, and, and the idea that, uh, UNFPA in Haiti, for example, very recently, Hurricane Matthew struck Haiti, I believe it was just last year. And um, we've been in Haiti uh, for, for a while now. We've been training midwives uh, because they have a, a fairly weak health system uh, down in Haiti. So we've been helping to train local Haitians uh, to be midwives, men and women. And when Hurricane Matthew struck, one of the uh, um, women uh, who we had trained as a midwife down there, stayed and delivered babies in the hospital by flashlight as she was waist deep in water. And she delivered six babies in one night because she had been trained uh, by UNFPA. She was there in the community. She felt obligated to stay uh, even as the eye of the hurricane was upon her. And she's a true hero. And those are the everyday heroes that don't really make the headlines here. Um, but but that's the that's that's the reality of the work that we do, and I can't think of anything more pro-life uh, than that. I can't either. You know, I want to. You know, it, it, the the motto or or slogan of you know every pregnancy is wanted. It, you know, I want kind of want to address the fact that there is a difference between an unplanned pregnancy and an unwanted pregnancy. And you know, here in the United States, fifty-one percent of pregnancies are unplanned. And that has, you know, I know that UNFPA doesn't work in the United States, but, you know, the topic is universal. And if in the United States, this topic is so contentious and debatable and 51% of pregnancies are still unplanned, you know, we're talking about something that impacts all women, all women. And, you know, every pregnancy makes a dent on your life. There's no two ways about it. If you have an unplanned pregnancy, but, you know, you have the resources to support the child, then the, the pregnancy might become very wanted. But it's the impact of an unwanted pregnancy, you know, on a woman who is already really vulnerable and doesn't have resources. You know, that having the ability to prevent a pregnancy in those situations is the difference between a dent and destruction. Yeah, no, it's funny. I had coffee with a friend yesterday who's a new mother, and she said, oh, you know, 
this child was unplanned but not unwanted, you know, and, right. and you know, she has, you know, two, a two-income family and a lot of resources and support. And I, I think for Rachel and I, you know, we've really seen the dramatic impact when women in particular in humanitarian settings, whether it's Haiti, as Rachel was just talking about, or women fleeing Syria um, who've had to leave everything behind, that's when an unplanned pregnancy can make a dramatic impact in their lives. Adeep, yeah. that may be still a wanted child and a loved and a beloved child, but at the same time, even more so, those women need to have the support. They need to have prenatal care. They need to have the access uh, to a safe delivery because when everything else around you is in um, shambles, you know, you, that's the last, the last hope you have is to make sure that you bring life into the world safely and healthily. So yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's just all these issues that we take for granted here in the U.S. that become magnified uh, in a less resourced, more marginalized community. You know, um, every time that I write about family planning and contraception, especially in the global context, if I read my comments... There will be a number of people who will say, well, if these women don't want to get pregnant, then they shouldn't have sex, which is, I mean, come on, you've, see, you've heard and seen that too, right? Um, <laughs> you know, again, I, 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 I'm, just, I'm laughing just sort of out of sadness. I mean, you know, many times these are women who aren't, you know, aren't freely choosing to be in that relationship. Uh, women, right. when they're in a humanitarian context, it's the highest rate of gender-based violence. Women are subjected to uh, rape. They're put into, often um, women are in marriages that are out of convenience or necessity at a time. I mean, these are uh, moments where they're not choosing perhaps to voluntarily have sexual relations with various men. So. But even if they are, you know, okay, let's say that, you know, these women meet all the criteria for women who should be able to have sex. Maybe they're married. Maybe, you know, they've got it all going on. Sex happens. It's part of our relationships. It's part of living. It's why we have people on this planet at all. It's such an ignorant statement, but one that still has some traction that, you know, I don't know. I could rant on that for a while. (laughs) Yeah, no, no. And I mean, I think that also gets back to part of what, you know, what our work is doing as well. And something that we've talked when we talked to you last time, Jeannie, too, is just fundamental respect and gender equality. You know, that um, those things would never be said about a man. Um, And, um, you know, women um, having just a completely different, uh, I mean, we could go on and on about that. (laughs) Yeah, we could. Yeah, we could. We could talk about that all day long, gender equality and all of that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think that everybody, we certainly agree, family planning is critical no matter what country a woman lives in. And certainly controlling if, when, and how often to become pregnant, it's particularly critical when a woman lives in poverty or without access to health care or she's unable to support herself. But it's also critical here in the United States. And you know, contraception isn't a new idea, yet we're still really grappling with it. I think women have been practicing techniques for ever, centuries at least, to prevent pregnancy. And diaphragms and condoms are pretty old too. Modern contraception, like the pill or the patch or shots or other hormonal methods, are only about 50. 
and IUDs are younger than that. Um, you know, what what is it that we need to do to make this culturally acceptable, considering how it's always been part of the fabric of our sexual lives? What do we got to do? Um, I, I, I mean, I, culturally acceptable here in the United States or culturally accepted globally? Don't you think it's kind of the same? Yeah. Um, Aren't we still grappling with this idea? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 well, I guess I think, you know, we're letting a minority voice have a lot more presence. I, I mean, I, again, I go back to Cairo. You know, 179 countries came forward and endorsed the idea that individuals should have the right to determine family size and have the means and access to do so. It's 179 yeah. countries who agreed to that. And yeah. you look at a lot of countries where you might think that contraception isn't culturally acceptable that are not only signatories to the Cairo conference, but who also are, you know, supporters of family planning. I'll give you an example of Ireland. Um, you know, a few years ago, uh, or I should say it was a while ago, uh, when we were um, lost our U.S. money, we had some Irish parliamentarians come over and ask to meet with uh, Irish American members of Congress to tell them you're being more Irish than the Irish. Um, you know, that. <laughs> You know, Ireland supports uh, this, you know, contraception and supports it globally. Uh, so I think sometimes it's that we have, uh, certainly in our country, uh, social conservative voices have had a very large presence, or there's this other attitude like, well, women can pay for it themselves, it's not that expensive, we don't need the government to support this, all at the same time as undermining it. Yeah, yeah. I remember getting a phone call from one of my daughters not too many years ago where um, the price for her birth control pills, which she was actually using for you know medical reasons as well as personal reasons, um, spiked up to like $160 per month. Wow. Now, who can afford that? You know, who can afford that? It's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, a lot of the focus of your work, the work that both of you do, is on women's health services during times of crises. Um, let's talk about that. Let's describe some of those crises and, and, and give our listeners a picture of, or, or a context for what UNFPA does. Sure. We talked um, a little bit about Haiti. Yeah, we talked a little bit about Haiti before, and uh, one one place where we're so incredibly proud of our work and the U.S. should be very proud of this investment is in Zatari Refugee Camp. And Zatari Refugee Camp um, is the largest camp for Syrian refugees in the world. Um, it lies uh, just a couple miles from the Syrian border uh, in the country of Jordan uh, in the Middle East. And there are about 80,000 refugees from Syria call that home. Uh, it's about the fourth now largest city in Jordan, which is a great partner of the United States uh, in the Middle East. And in that camp, uh, there is exactly one place where women can give birth to their baby safely. Because um, as you mentioned before, Jeannie, sex is a part of life. And uh, mm -hmm. couples who are in the camp, who are now in the camp going on five years, six years, seven years, I mean, this is a protracted crisis. Um, yeah. Folks have met, they've gotten married. They've started families or continued their families. 
And there's exactly one place in that camp to give birth. And guess who started it? Uh, the U.S. did. And guess who is executing it? UNFPA. So yeah. there's a maternity ward there where you can seek prenatal care. You can get your prenatal checkups. You can give birth to your baby and recover. And more than 7,500 babies have been born there. And not a single mom has died. And that is remarkable. Um, that's remarkable. That's remarkable. That's really remarkable. Yeah. And to have that, to have that statistic anywhere, let alone in a refugee camp, is is amazing. That's a, um, a a real token to my very brave colleagues who work there. So even in the one of the worst protracted crises that's in the news every day, Syria, there yeah. are small points of light that still happen there because of the work that we do uh, with formally with the U.S. government support. I I. Um, I'm thinking back on this story. I had an opportunity to um, interview a nonprofit organization that was probably partnered with UNFPA that was training midwives in that refugee camp. Mm -hmm. And some of the midwives who worked there would go across the border to deliver babies in Syria because there are still women who are, you know, two miles on the other side of the border who are going into labor too and haven't been able to get refuge. So these midwives are willing to cross the border, go into the most brutally violent places on earth and deliver babies because that's what you do. Absolutely. That's what you do. Absolutely. Yeah. These these midwives, yeah. these men and women, these doctors, they're, these nurses, they're risking their lives because they they have the, the biggest hearts in the world and they're the bravest people in the world. I mean, just last week, Jeannie, we were actually speaking with CARE and with one of our partner SAMS, the Syrian American Medical Society. And one of these doctors um, was saying that the hospital is the most dangerous place to be in Syria. Can you imagine that a hospital is the most dangerous place to be in Syria because it is such a target of the violence uh, that's happening there? Mm -hmm. So. Uh, they have had to start building hospitals underground in caves. And I can't even imagine working uh, in a cave underground in these hospitals, but that's what they've resorted to do. And these doctors and these midwives and these nurses, some of whom UNFPA has trained, some of whom other brave organizations are, are working with, but they do this day in and day out at their own peril. And they're the true heroes uh, in this story. They really are. And, you know, the contrast between what Syrians and Jordans and, and, and women in, in this particular refugee setting are accustomed to, the contrast is, is so stark. It's in many ways different than, um, you know, Syrian refugees had lives and lifestyles that were more similar to ours and our own than to what people might traditionally think of as, you know, refugee origins. No question. They, they had jobs and homes and hospitals and doctors. And these are women who, just like our own, their birth culture says you get prenatal care at the clinic. You see the midwives and doctors. You go to the hospital. You have your babies. That's what's culturally done. And now, you know, it's a refuge hospital in a cave. This is Absolutely. pretty stark. And, and they're grateful to go there. Absolutely. If they're brave enough to go there. I mean, really, it's it's Syria was a middle income country, highly educated, full yeah. of doctors and nurses and lawyers and business people. I mean, highly advanced cultural and civilization. I mean, unbelievably, you know, strong and stable country uh, until just right. a couple of years ago. So you're absolutely right, Jeannie. 
It wasn't a developing country. It no. wasn't like, you know, parts of sub-Saharan Africa or, you know, Middle Eastern countries that haven't developed yet. They were developed. Yeah, it's pretty stark, which is kind of, you know, there but for the grace of God. It could be any <laughs> country, really, that That's this right. could happen to. Yeah. So when we were emailing back and forth about this particular episode, you said something about childbirth in a tree. This is a story you better tell me. I have a childbirth in a tree story, too, but not a very good one. Um, Well, just just that I had an opportunity to talk with Ibu Robin Lim from Bali, who went to the Philippines after Hurricane Haiyan to help set up emergency birth um, services there. And she told me a story about a midwife who had to climb a tree to deliver a baby. Yeah, I mean, women give birth in, you know, if you watch any, you know, doctor show on American television, I mean, I remember ER, right, the babies were always being born in taxi cabs. And so right. uh, this was um, after flooding in Bangladesh, that a woman was in a tree and gave birth in a tree. Um, so, you know, just extreme places uh, where babies come into the world. And something that Rachel and I often talk about is, when you see these disaster situations like Haiyan being a perfect example, right? CNN, that's the first story they're always gonna tell is about the baby being in the tree or the first born mm-hmm. child is being born. But when development dollars come out, the dollars always go to food, shelter, uh, water, which are all incredibly important things. But the needs of pregnant women, the needs of women and girls are always on the bottom of the list. And these are the most fundamental and small cost, low cost interventions that can make a huge difference for a woman's life. Um, you know, an example is that woman in a tree, right? She has fled and she has climbed or gotten up there. Maybe the waters have pushed her up there. But that woman is the kind of woman that UNFPA addresses by trying to provide her, uh, whether it's a safe delivery or if she is in a completely resource depleted area, we hand out something called a safe delivery kit. And when we send mm-hmm. you the picture of the kitty cat shoes, We'll send you a picture of this, too, because it is a plastic sheet, a razor blade, a piece of string, plastic gloves, bar soap, and an infographic on how to deliver a baby. Because sometimes that might be the only thing that that pregnant woman has. The other thing that we give out is called a dignity kit. And when a woman is fleeing, whether it's a hurricane or a war situation, making sure that women have sanitary napkins a comb, a toothbrush, clean underwear. Um, We often, um, in our, depending on the cultural context, we can put in a headscarf. We were finding after uh, the tsunami that women in Sri Lanka were not going out to get food drop packages because they didn't have any way to cover their heads. Mm -hmm. So, you know, women's dignity in a conflict situation or a natural disaster is incredibly important and, and, and rarely met or forgotten. And these are the kind of things that UNFPA is on the front lines of addressing and meeting. And then when we go back earlier, it's like, why is this controversial? You would be surprised. I mean, we we had a member of Congress and we were talking to them about the sanitary napkin need. And this member of Congress who shall remain nameless was like, I can't go, I can't go on the floor of the US Senate and talk about that. I can't talk about that. It's a natural, Yeah. You know what? He's he's representing, you know, 51 percent of the population. We have biology. This is how we work. 
I'm just, I'm saying. So, you know, and, and, and it often worries me too. Like recently we just heard an anecdote about a high level policymaker who didn't want to go to a maternity clinic because they felt uncomfortable about around being women who had just given birth. Oh, so, so uncomfortable. Those I'm, poor women. I might wonder if they were uncomfortable too. But it's just, I mean, you just, you just can't believe it. Like it's, you just can't believe it. So you know that um, lady who was climbing the tree in labor <laughs> and giving birth in a tree during a hurricane? Do you think yeah. she might have been uncomfortable? Yeah. So maybe a little. Yeah. Yeah. So the reason but, why the the ultimate controversy here, though, is that. The administration that we're dealing with now, which I would love to say, you know, he who will not be named, but let's name it. The Trump administration has yanked all funding for UNFPA. Correct. Yanked it. Zero to doubt. Uh, Nothing. I, I, Nada. U.S. funding. U.S. funding. Okay. Are, I don't let's want let's to explain that. Yeah. Well, I'll let Rachel explain that. I just want people thinking that we're having to shut down our maternity clinic. We are... We are not shutting our doors, but I'll let Rachel explain where that money went. Yes, so unfortunately in March of this year, the Trump administration uh, decided to pull all funding, uh, uh, US funding from UNFPA. And in the context of of what we were just discussing in the humanitarian setting, the US was I believe our third largest donor uh, in the humanitarian space, maybe even our second. And in the context of the Syria crisis, they were our number one donor um, for the Syria region. So for Syria, Jordan, Iraq, Turkey, et cetera. Um, so that's a, that's a huge gap that our team is working really hard to fill. But per Sarah's point, um, a lot of other uh, countries are stepping up, um, Canada, the UK, and Sweden, and Finland, they're, they're doing a great job in filling this gap uh, for 2017. But you know, the clock starts over again in 2018. And that funding from the US, which is about $70 million, um, is no small amount of money that we're going to have to make up every single year this decision uh, remains. And we're very, very sad about that. So what do you think is the responsibility of the private sector in that situation? Yeah, that's a good question. Oh, go ahead, Sarah. No, go ahead, Rachel. Uh, I was just going to say, I mean, we've already seen so much uh, from the private sector, um, especially the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and other foundations, uh, you know, all over the world. We uh, have been in been in, in talks with them and, and been in talks with other organizations about potentially uh, getting donor, uh, getting donations from them. But, you know, it can't be underestimated that the, the money is a big deal, but I think what UNFPA really values in the United States is also the technical leadership and the political leadership. Because when the US stands out and says, we're not gonna stand by this agency or that agency, that sends a message for the rest of the world uh, that maybe this isn't a worthy cause. Um, however, we, we have seen a, a vehement disagreement. Uh, we have some really good friends all around the world uh, lots of countries have spoken out publicly disagreeing with the Trump administration's decision. But it still makes it hard for our teams on the ground who formerly worked with U.S. government teams. So USAID experts and experts from the State Department and the U.S. embassies all over the world, again, in hotspots like Syria and Yemen and South Sudan that are very much in the interest of the U.S. to stay engaged, um, they're having to step away from that. And, and that is... Um, I, I would imagine, 
uh, as an American, that would be very hard to to accept. Yeah, I find it kind of em- embarrassing that <laughs> you know we're stepping back in this position. We're taking a very we're making a very public statement that our country actually doesn't support women. No, we actually don't. Sorry about that. I mean, maybe that's really, really low level bottom line, but that's kind of the message that is being sent is that we will not support programs that support women at the most fundamental level because of this non-existent issue. You know, no U.S. funding has ever gone to abortions in humanitarian settings. That's not what happens. And yet, and yet, that's what we talk about. Well, I mean, the U.S., there's so many um, restrictions, as you point out, you know, again, you know, under U.S. law, you cannot use U.S. taxpayer dollars to pay for abortions. And there are so many other restrictions that are put there as, quote, you know, safeguards on the money. And, you know, no other no other country does that. So uh, you would think that would be enough. But it's it's not it's not about practicality or or really learning about what's really going on this is really a political um political fact-free zone yeah it's not about health because this law will actually or this this defunding unfba does just the opposite it's not about supporting women because it does just the opposite it's about ideology and politics well, I, I've been laughing. I said, you know, we're the we're the original recipients of fake news. I mean, right. it, if, we're not. I'm always saying, you know, we're not nearly as interesting as our critics make us out to believe to be. You know, like if you hear this narrative of how they describe our work, I'm like, whoa, who are those people? God, I wouldn't want to do that. Oh wait, that's me. <laughs> it's uh-huh. like it's yeah. so crazy. You're that wicked person. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's crazy. And I and it's even like even more so. Like Rachel and I are Americans, and we deal in the U.S. context. But we have colleagues up in our headquarters who are just like, they just, they can't believe it. And they say, please, please tell the Americans that's not at all what we're doing. And I say, well, we're trying, but. (laughs) Yeah, let's get the word out. It's about, you know, midwives and dignity and birth kits and basic health care and access to choices. (laughs) It's about supporting women to be who they are in the bodies they have with the lives they live. Yes. You know, I Amen. think that's so much of our politics is about, well, we can't provide that because it's not the same as what we're going to be providing to men. So what? <laughs> we're not men. Yeah. We live here on this planet. We produce all of the children, all of the future generations of taxpayers. We do that for you. Thank you. Give us a little help. <laughs> yeah. See, I told you on my podcast, we can say it like it is. I like it. I like it. Well, no, I just, you know, and, and I, I, and that's again, where we just started this conversation. I mean, what's so awesome about our mission? And I mean that awesome, like awesome in every sense of the word uh-huh. is the most awesome thing in the world is bringing new life into the world and to be able to support that and ensure that it's happening by choice and safely is an incredible mission. And the fact that that's not, that's controversial here or anywhere else in the world is just mystifying to me. I know. You know, I just, I think about just the arc of, you know, contraceptive history within my own life. And, um, you know, I'm in my 50s. So, you know, I've been, I've been watching the impact that it's had on women's lives m- my whole life. 
I'm the youngest of eight children. My mom was a, a Catholic woman who didn't use contraception. So the fact that I'm here on earth at all is a freaking miracle. <laughs> um, and then, you know, through the 60s, you watch the traction that the birth control pill had on women's lives and the evolution that it spawned in the 70s and 80s and beyond that to where we are today, where there's certainly more expectation and acceptance of what women can do with their lives when they have access to basic services and techniques. But, you know, all of these things have had sort of their their health ups and downs over these years where we've learned what's safe, what works. And, you know, part of the reason why I have four children instead of two is because the arc of my pregnancies kind of coincide with the downside of some of those methods, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. But But now we've reached this sort of, I don't know, are we at a really, really good point in contraceptive history where what we have to offer women and families is a really, really good, safe, healthy product and options? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think there are a lot of really good, healthy options, but I I know, I mean, I think we have seen a lot in the last 20 years, um, as you say, the the arc of what's good or what's not. I mean, when um, the Cairo conference uh, at that time, Romania had just made contraception legal. Um, prior to that, it was illegal in Romania, and women's only way to uh, space their births was through abortion. So you could meet women who had had, you know, eight, nine, or ten abortions. Um, right. That that was their their only method. And it was interesting because the the bringing in contraception to Romania was very fraught because women were so had been so um, you know, led to believe that it was very dangerous for their bodies and their systems. So it was working with very young, we worked with this very young OBGYN who was starting this like new movement to bring in contraception. So, you know, it has been, um, you know, we have gotten to, I think, a point where we have got a lot of very good methods, but whether those methods um, are, you know, they're still research that can go that I'm sure we'll find methods that are even more effective and and more more safe and I think what what we yeah Yeah. what we have to offer now I mean there's there's something for everybody it's pretty affordable we know it's predictable it's we've got long acting products and and you know one of the one of the things that I'd like to to really kind of focus on here is that beyond preventing abortions, which is addressing the the key criticism here. What it does is it prevents maternal deaths and newborn deaths because when women have back-to-back pregnancies or they get pregnant when they're too young or they get pregnant when they're too old or, you know, they don't have time be, you know, all of those things, every pregnancy puts your body at risk for something to happen. And if you live in a setting where there is no midwife, doctor, blood bank, antibiotics, surgical suite within 100 miles, well, you're going to die. Yeah, this is what's going to happen. See, Jeannie, this is just one of the stories I told Rachel I wanted to be able to tell. So I'll quickly tell the story of this OBGYN that I met in Ethiopia. And at the time, there were 104 OBGYNs in the entire country. So and more than half of them were in the city of Addis Ababa. So the likelihood that you would see an OBGYN was about zero. 
And we met this guy in a very rural area at a health clinic. And um, he told us that he was seeing two to three women die a day in his clinic. Yeah. Because yeah. by the time they got there, they were their obstructed labor, they were so far gone, they were bleeding out. And he had no tools to help them. He had no sutures, he didn't have gloves. He was, and, and when he spoke to us, you know, we were acting, oh my gosh, you're such a hero. And he's like, I'm not a hero. Can you get me out of here? Like, you know, can yeah. you get me a job in the US? Like, get me out of here. And we asked him, we said, you know, if we had a magic wand, like what, what could we do that could help you? And I thought he was gonna say, get me a helicopter so I can get them into the city, you know, get me a two-way radio so we know that an obstructed labor is coming our way. And he said, if you could do one thing, if you could wave a magic wand, bring family planning. If women yeah. were able to space their births, that would make more of a difference for the women in this community. And that has like completely stuck with me. You know, that women, as you say, because they aren't able to space a birth, uh, that they are too young, that these are often very young women in that part of Ethiopia, for example. Uh, we did a survey that women, young women said that they had their first sexual encounter within marriage before they'd had their first menstrual period. So we are talking about very young girls who are getting pregnant before they're physically or emotionally ready to do so. And that results in terrible outcomes, whether it's a maternal mortality or a morbidity, like it, which we haven't had time to talk about today, but obstetric fistula, which is something that was rampant in our own country. Um, the first fistula hospital is where the Waldorf Astoria Hotel now stands in New York. Um, so we had that issue here I didn't in our own know country. That. Oh yeah. And we had a big yeah. problem here. And, and, and what happens is that these are, you know, again, the most poor, rural, marginalized, often girls who get a fistula because they don't have anyone there who can recognize an obstructed labor. They don't have access to a cesarean section. They aren't, and, and they don't know what's happened to them. They, for your, so, for your listeners, yeah. Let me tell my listeners really quickly what a fistula is. It's what happens is that, you know, we've been talking about the term obstructed labor. And these are terms that we really aren't going to be hearing very much here in the United States because we have really different medical and healthcare conditions. But let's say that a young girl gets pregnant, she's 13, 14 years old, and she starts into labor. Baby's got a big head, her pelvis is very tiny, and um, it doesn't mold properly to allow the baby to be born vaginally. And of course, she doesn't live anywhere near a hospital, so she's not getting a C-section. There aren't any forceps. Nobody's helping that baby out. And what ends up happening is that the baby's head, the back, the bony back part of the baby's head, will rub the tissues between the birth canal, the vagina, and either the bladder or the rectum. So that if she, once she delivers that baby, if she doesn't literally labor to death, then what happens is she's got a hole where she's going to leak feces or urine. And since she doesn't live anywhere where they have healthcare facilities to stitch her back up and fix it, this is her new life. This is what she does now. And, you know, infection, ostracization from the family and the household. All of that is really common realities in places where there aren't any healthcare facilities. It's really common. Not here in the U.S. People don't know about it so much. Yeah, well, you, you, you said it. I mean, I don't, want, I don't want to say the word beautifully because it's like a horrific, horrific condition. But yeah. UNFPA is the leader of the campaign to end fistula. And we have been doing that work for over a decade to 
um, raise awareness and work. And, and part of that is a key aspect is prevention is access to family yeah. planning. So yeah, if that girl can wait until she's 20, yeah, then her bones and body can accommodate a pregnancy, you know, and also she can finish school, maybe she could exactly. maybe get some job skills, maybe she could have the emotional and physical and developmental maturity to actually raise children who can function as, you know, independent people in the world. Yeah, no, I mean, our campaign works on preventing it, treating it. Uh, it's a cost, it's a surgery Surgery that's about $400, which would, mm -hmm. you know, would be considerable for someone in the U.S., but if you're living on less than $2 a day, it's astronomical. And then yeah. the other part is what we call restoring hope. And that's where we work with women who've had a fistula, who are now repaired, to give them job training, to help them go back into their communities to be reintegrated. Because it's incredibly depression. They're depressing. There are high rates of depression with women yeah. who have lived with fistulas for years and don't know why. Yeah. They think they're cursed. Yeah. 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 They don't understand it. They don't understand what happened to them. They think that it's something that they've done wrong, that there's something wrong with them as women, that they've been cursed, like you said. Um, and actually, it's biology. It's physicality. But, but it's, you know, but, yeah, but, that, yeah. but that, again, that's, that's the kind of radical work that we're doing. We're trying to stop that from happening and fixing women who've had it occur to them. And that, to me, why wouldn't everyone in the United States want to support that? I don't know the answer to that question. That one's just <laughs> too hard. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why. But we're going to try to change that. We're going to change that because, you know, a big part of changing minds is raising awareness. And you do that by talking about it like we have today. And, you know, we've been talking about it a while. So I think we probably better wrap up for today. But I do have a couple more questions for you. And you both have to answer these. So... <laughs> Uh, let's see. I think, Sarah, I made you go first before, didn't I? Mm -hmm. So, Rachel, you're up. All right. How would, you fill, how would you fill in the blank? Nobody ever told me that. Nobody, nobody ever told me that 90% of adolescent pregnancies in the world happen within marriage. Nobody ever told me that either. That's remarkable. All right. That strikes me every time. Yeah. Sarah. Oh, no, you? Jeannie. I'm not good on filling in the blanks. You have to do uh, it anyways. I do? Okay. <laughs> yeah, pretty um, much have to. Let's see. Oh, dear. Um, I'm just going to have to. I, I'm just not feeling good on my feet right now. I have to come up with something clever. So I'll, I'll say nobody ever told me how to think on my feet. Oh, that's pretty good. True. That's pretty good. That's not true. Okay, you know, you could just, you could just, you know, nobody ever told me that brownies really do rule the world. Or oh, okay, uh, you could do anything you want. Nobody ever told me that teenage girls could actually be awesome. Oh, I don't. I I believe teenage girls are totally awesome. I think they're awesome. Uh, yeah. Um, nobody ever told me how um, how to. Uh, work the app function on my iPhone. And I've been asking my kids that for a while. How about that? <laughs> That's pretty good. I think I'm going to let you off the hook there. <laughs> so our last question then, it, it might um, throw you, but I don't know. Um, where are you in your lives in terms of motherhood? Now, well, 
I'll, Rachel, I'll, I know that you don't even have fur babies, so <laughs> we could be talking about your mom. We could be talking about your plans. We could talk about the women that you work with, anything. Absolutely. So I am not a mother. I am a practicer of family planning because I am choosing when and how many children I want to have. And that will happen for my husband and I at some point, but not right now. And I am blessed to have the information and services to choose when's the best for us. And I'm the very uh, lucky daughter of uh, a beautiful mother and a wonderful sister and uh, a most wonderful grandmother in the world. Hmm, nice. Okay. I can answer this one. Oh, good job. Uh, yeah, well, you know, as I say, I'm the mom of a girl going off to college and a boy-girl twins entering high school. And I will say um, I had a pretty harrowing pregnancy with my twins. And through that experience, certainly even more underscored this work for me because if I was anywhere but in the U.S., I probably wouldn't have survived or my children wouldn't have survived that pregnancy. So I was really lucky. And then I also want to give a shout out for my own mother, uh, who's going to be 92 in September. And uh, Rachel and I were just at a meeting where a very spry 83-year-old man was leading the meeting and everyone was commenting, oh, he's so amazing. And I thought to myself, he's got nothing on my mom. <laughs> that man had nothing on she, my mom. She rolls the world. She She's in charge of all of it. She's oh, wow. pretty sharp, yeah. So. Awesome. Well, ladies, this has been fun. And once again, I feel like we could just keep talking and talking. <laughs> so when you guys have something that you know that my listeners really need to know, just let me know and we'll get you back on the pod. ASAP. Cool? Uh, we'd love the it. Best, we'd love it. Yes. Great. Excellent. All right. Well, then we will talk again down the road. Thank you. Thank you, Jeannie. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. Mama said. Our guests today were Rachel Moynihan and Sarah Clark. And you can learn more about their work at unfpa.org. And head on over to the Care Action Podcast wherever you get your pods and give a listen to episode 15. I titled that what's at stake for global women's health. It's a good one. And we go deeper on the subject. You can learn more about me at jeanfaulkner.com. Email me at jean at jeanfaulkner. Tweet me at jeanfaulkner. And make sure you subscribe to this podcast, will ya? And leave me a review. It helps a lot. Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. You can pick up my book over on my website or wherever books are sold. Thanks, y'all. We'll talk again next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>